In the rural countryside of Knoxville, Tennessee, normally a quiet, close-knit community, one woman strikes fear into the local residents. Nobody dares to cross her. Her name, Rainella Leith. These days, a gray-haired older lady, but underneath her grandma-like exterior, there is a mind which holds many secrets. Two deaths, one attempted murder, and a dead child. This case will leave you in disbelief, questioning the entire judicial system of the United States. Welcome to the Beyond Evil podcast, where we discuss and dissect the most mysterious, terrifying, and mind-bending cases from all over the world. Before we start, we would like to send our sincere condolences to the family and friends of Ed Dossett, Dave Leith, and little Eddie Dossett. All died in very different circumstances, but their loss is deeply felt. Knoxville, Tennessee is the home to Rainella Leith. Few in the area would consider having crosswords with her, and the actions of even law enforcement towards her have been brought into question. This lady would be dragged through the court system time after time, but like some sort of geriatric mafia godfather in the movies, she always came out clean. She isn't stupid, and only a fool would treat her like one. Rainella Leith was born on October 25, 1948, in Knoxville, Tennessee. Shortly after she was born, the family moved to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where she was educated and attended Oak Ridge High School, eventually going on to attend the state's university, where she studied nursing. She grew up in a very isolated but peaceful area. The community had been pre-planned and established for workers at the nuclear power station. It was one of those places where everyone knew everyone else. Crime was very minimal, and children were safe to go and do as they pleased without fear. She was a bright young girl, always at the top of her class, even studied extra classes at every opportunity she could. It was a conservative upbringing, though. Rainella didn't even see a person with a different colored skin to herself until 1955 because of segregation and the consumption of alcohol was strictly forbidden, the county she lived in still had prohibition, despite the failed experiment ending back in 1933. She came from a good family. Both of her parents were dedicated and patriotic. They met before America entered World War II in college. Rainella's father, Dewey, enlisted in the Air Force as part of the war effort, and her mother, Annie, continued to study, hoping to become a schoolteacher. Dewey was injured during the war and was awarded a Purple Heart, the medal given to personnel who are injured in the line of duty. After the war, the couple immediately reunited and continued their lives as before. Annie was now working as a schoolteacher, and Dewey went back to finish his education, eventually gaining a master's degree in not one, but two subjects, chemistry and physics. He became a nuclear scientist who worked for the American Department of Energy, specifically focusing on the safe storage of nuclear energy. Not an uncommon theme for World War II veterans, lots of them had seen firsthand what nuclear power was capable of in places like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and no one wanted to see that again. While at college, Rainella met William Edward Dossett, an intelligent student, Ed, as he liked to be known, was intending to go on to law school. Rainella and Ed were well-suited for each other, and it was love at first sight. In 1969, they married and started making plans for a family of their own. 
They moved just outside of Raynella's hometown of Knoxville to live on Ed's family property, a farm with approximately 150 acres of land attached to it. Ed had a very different childhood to his wife. He wasn't neglected or uncared for, but his mother sadly died of a heart attack. And just a few weeks later, his father died of cancer. At just eight years old, he was left as an orphan. This did not seem to curb his lust for life, though. Despite his personal adversity, he excelled in school and was described as an exceptionally kind and polite child. He was a gifted sportsman and a real go-getter. Despite Ed eventually graduating with a business degree, he was not well-liked by Raynella's mother, probably because he didn't come from the same steady background that she had. This, of course, wasn't his fault, and it shouldn't have been held against him, but nevertheless, Annie didn't speak to Ed for the first 13 years of his marriage to her daughter. After Raynella graduated, she began to work as a nurse. After attending law school, Ed finally gained his qualifications in 1972. Ed referred to himself as a farmer and a country lawyer. Not forgetting his family roots, he always said, I'm a farmer first and a lawyer second. He was very popular, a very well-liked man, known for not prejudging anyone for any reason. This was demonstrated in his legal career. He specialized in helping those who had very little and couldn't afford lawyers to defend themselves. When the young family first moved back to Ed's farm, the property, as expected, was in a state of disrepair. With the help of an architect and a friend who was a contractor, Ed rebuilt the whole house himself while he and his family lived in a trailer parked on the land. Moving on a few years, the family were nicely settled into their home. In 1982, the Attorney General for Knox County decided to retire, leaving a vacancy. Ed, still the ambitious go-getter he always was, decided to stand for election. And just like everything else in his life, he put 100% of his energies into the effort, and he won. In a slight coincidence, Annie, who still did not approve of him, started liking Ed all of a sudden. All the way through his campaign and right up to the election, she would be photographed with him as many times as possible. Ed wasn't stupid. He probably knew his mother-in-law just wanted the attention, but he wasn't one to make trouble, so he let it slide. As is the case with many relationships, however, things are not always as they seem. Neither are the people in them. By 1985, Raynella had given birth to the couple's third child, Kate. They also had a young son, little Eddie, and their eldest, a daughter, Maggie. Ed had a secretary who worked for him called Kay. Kay and her husband, Steve, were good friends with the Dossett family, and they spent a lot of time together socializing. That is, until life got in the way. Raynella was very busy with three children, and Kay herself became pregnant, forcing her to quit her job with Ed. Although the couples didn't see much of each other anymore, two out of the four did, Ed was still spending a lot of time at Steve and Kay's visiting. But unfortunately, the main reason for this was he was having an affair with his former secretary. Ed never intended to leave his wife. He was an elected public servant in a very conservative county, and that wouldn't look good. But friends from the time say that Kay wasn't in love with Steve at all. She was, however, deeply in love with Ed. Steve didn't find out about the affair until many years later, but in 1988, Kay gave birth to their second child, Kyle who was, in fact, Ed's son. Whether Raynella was sick of being at home at the time with the children while Ed was out, or she just got bored, she became friendly with a man called Dave Leith. Dave didn't live far away and was a friend of Ed's who worked as a barber. He also owned a swimming pool. 
Rainella had quit nursing to be a full-time mother by now, and she would spend many days with her children at Dave's pool. Meanwhile, at home, it seems that the marriage between Ed and Rainella was breaking down fast. Ed may have earned the money and built the home, but Rainella was well known for wearing the trousers in the relationship, so to speak. She was seen as a woman you just didn't cross. Ed began to suffer with chronic stomach pains. At a local authority meeting, someone asked him if he was okay, and he replied, I have the meanest wife in the world who is trying to kill me. It was noted at the time that Ed did not smile when he made the strange statement, but everyone else took it as a joke. As we mentioned previously, everyone knew Rainella was the real boss in that relationship, so it came as no surprise that Ed would have something to complain about now and again. Although you may have jumped to the assumption by now that Rainella was perhaps poisoning Ed or even beating him up, this wasn't the case. The pains grew so unbearable that in 1991 he was admitted to a local hospital and underwent tests. The news was not good. The doctors found cancerous tumors in Ed's small intestine and liver. Upon further exploratory surgery, they found that the cancer had spread through several organs and was all around his abdomen. For whatever reason, Rainella was keen to hide her husband's illness from the world. Perhaps she was in denial that her husband was dying. Perhaps she didn't want it to affect their income. After all, in his current situation, he was not capable of fulfilling his duties and could have been replaced. In March of 1992, a cousin of Ed's, Elizabeth, came all the way from Illinois, about 500 miles away, to see him. Rainella refused to let her see him and wouldn't even let her in the house. Cousin Elizabeth had been specifically asked by Ed to come and see him, and she was very upset. After returning to Illinois without seeing him, she received a letter from Rainella explaining that Ed simply wasn't well enough to have visitors at that moment. Against all odds, Ed did make it back to work, although given the medical treatments weren't the same in the 90s as they are today, he still must have been in constant pain. But as was the pattern with his life from childhood, he wasn't easily beaten and not one to give up. He even secured government funding to address a new crime wave which was sweeping through the county, driving under the influence. He saw this as an important effort because there weren't many resources to catch these people while they were still under the influence, and more than often they walked free. Then they would reoffend on multiple occasions. He used the funding to set up a special DUI unit. Sadly, Ed's return to work only lasted a few months. By late June to early July, he was deteriorating fast and was pretty much left bedridden on morphine. On July 9th, 911 operators received a call from Rainella. She explained that her husband was outside, lying on the ground with no pulse. She didn't mention his terminal cancer and said that he had been trampled on by his own cattle. Rainella said, My husband said he wanted to go down and see the cattle. When I went to check on him, he was lying on the ground. Still, I checked for a pulse but couldn't find one. Something must have set off the cattle because they were pouring out of the enclosure. I tried CPR, I tried to call 911 from my cell phone, but nobody answered. The next part of her story is a little strange. She explained to a Knox County Sheriff that because nobody answered when she tried 911, she ran back to the house to call the local hospital, but she couldn't remember the number. Now remember, this was at a hospital she had worked at for years as the director of nursing. But then she hadn't worked for several years, so it's possible that maybe she had forgotten the number. What she said she did instead was call the director of a local market. 
and she asked him to call for an ambulance instead. The story seemed to stack up. The ambulance did arrive, and Ed was rushed to the hospital, but sadly, he was pronounced dead on arrival. He was just 44 years old. The police department did launch an investigation. After all, Ed was one of their own. In the end, they came to the only possible conclusion. Ed's death was the result of an agricultural accident. That may have been case closed as far as local law enforcement were concerned, but not for the population. People had already been wary of Raynella, and people who knew Ed and had seen him in the weeks leading up to his death said he was acting very strangely. Constantly in and out of consciousness, unable to walk a straight line as if he had been drinking constantly. On top of that, Ed's life insurance had a double indemnity clause inserted into it. This meant that if Ed's death was by an accident, Raynella would be awarded twice the amount. And of course, with it being ruled as an agricultural accident, she did get twice the money. Knox County law enforcement knew Ed personally, and they didn't believe Raynella's story. It was very unlikely that the cows would stampede over anyone. They weren't like bulls with red flags waving in their faces. Raynella also told them that she was angry with the cows and that she went and got a rifle from the house and shot one of them. But police were unable to find any gunshot wounds to the animals. They also didn't believe that Ed was up walking around on his own given his recent condition. They thought Raynella had taken Ed down to the cattle, but thinking it is one thing. Proving it is another. In the end, there simply was not enough evidence to pursue the case any further. Plus, they had a hunch that Ed may have planned this himself, as he was already dying. He wanted to make sure that his family got as much money as possible. So, with that in mind and out of respect for the deceased, their much-loved colleague, the case was closed. After all, surely the wife of a top legal civil servant was beyond reproach, right? And hey, what's a little insurance fraud between friends? However, there was still one more hurdle to jump over. There would have to be an autopsy to get the insurance money. We don't mean any offense to anyone who works in the insurance industry, but let's face it, when you make an insurance claim, the company will explore every possible avenue before handing over a single penny. During the autopsy, it was discovered that Ed had cracked ribs, his lungs had hemorrhaged, and of course he had multiple tumors. His outer body was covered in cuts and bruises, and several marks on his overall seemed consistent with hoof prints, potentially made by stampeding cattle. Such wounds, apart from the obvious cancer, would have been consistent with trampling, but no further tests were carried out to establish this in either way. Something else that wasn't mentioned or even noticed was the morphine levels in Ed's bloodstream. We mentioned earlier that he was given the substance to help with his pain. Although completely legitimate, surely an insurance company would want to know that, but apparently not. With the autopsy results complete, Raynella had Ed buried on the farm, something that is completely legal in Tennessee if it's on private property. Although the autopsy was officially complete, there was still more to come, but more on that shortly. Ed's family were very unhappy at the burial. They said they knew where Ed wanted to be buried, and they had not been consulted on the matter. At the funeral, Raynella was viewed very suspiciously. She was said to be very chatty, almost cheerful, circulating the room, laughing and joking, acting like it was more of a party than a last goodbye. One of the friends approached to offer condolences. Raynella shrugged her shoulders and said, Oh well, if he'd have survived, he would have had a lot of operations. 
Maybe she was in shock and trying to put on a brave face that day, but either way, it was a callous remark to make about someone that you had been married to since 1969. Rainella didn't help her public perception either. Maybe she just didn't care what anybody else thought. But six months later, she got married for a second time. To who, you might ask? Ed's friend, the one we mentioned earlier, Dave Leith. Being a pretty tight-knit community, the two of them marrying so close to Ed's death didn't go over very well. In the eyes of local people, it gave the somewhat understandable impression that uh, they had been carrying on behind Ed's back, although this has always been denied. Dave was a well-liked guy around town. He had one daughter who he adored and had also been married previously, but that marriage only lasted a few years. His wife found out that he was having an affair and immediately filed for divorce. Now, remember how Raynella's mother didn't like Ed until he got into public office? Well, it is unlikely that she would think any different of Dave. He had no qualifications to speak of. He was a high school dropout who got a job as a barber when he was 19 before opening his own shop. Not that there's anything wrong with working as a barber, of course, but we've seen how snobby Annie had acted in the past. Dave also wasn't what you might consider to be husband material. He spent most of his spare time fixing cars and going to watch stock car racing. But he did consider himself a good-looking guy. In other words, he was more than a little vain. He had numerous bits of plastic surgery, including facelifts and a tummy tuck. His self-confidence took a knock, though. Unfortunately, when he was chopping wood, he managed to get a splinter in his eye. But instead of going to get it checked out, he left it, hoping the pain would go away. But of course, it didn't. By the time he went to the doctors, it was too late. He was diagnosed with a detached retina, and they told him he would never see out of that eye again. For a man who prided himself on his looks, this was devastating. From then on, he spent most of his time trying to hide his eye by wearing sunglasses almost all the time or simply looking down at the ground when talking to someone. Raynella and Dave married in January of 1993. Dave was head over heels with her. He even signed a prenuptial agreement to protect any money that Raynella may have gotten as the result of Ed's death. Dave sold his home and moved to the family farm, formerly belonging to Ed. Despite local perception and the dubious circumstances around the hurried marriage, the relationship was good. The couple were seen regularly around town, laughing, joking, holding hands, but it wasn't to last. Behind the scenes, things weren't going as well. Dave's daughter, Cindy, recalled finding her father sobbing in his pickup truck because of a fight he had gotten into with Raynella. He simply told her that it was nothing to worry about and they would work things out. Randall Pettigo was the medical professional, and we use that term somewhat loosely, who conducted Ed Dossett's autopsy. To say that it was a mistake to choose this man was something of an understatement. He had his own issues with drug and alcohol abuse, which would obviously impact his ability to do the job thoroughly. But it would turn out that that was only the tip of the iceberg. Authorities noticed he was ordering large quantities of a drug called Versed. It is used for anesthesia before surgical procedures, and when used in the correct way, it's very effective. However, in the wrong hands, it can be used for more nefarious purposes. It was discovered that Dr. Pettigo was using the drug on underaged boys who believed they were getting a simple vaccine. Now, it doesn't take a genius to work out what a grown man wanted with these young boys, especially if they were drugged, but we'll leave that to your imagination. 
He was immediately investigated and struck off, rightly, to never practice medicine again. But nothing was made of his previous works, including Ed Dossett's autopsy. Had he been under the influence during that autopsy? Could this be the reason that he didn't check the morphine levels in Ed's bloodstream? Anyway, time moved on, and the dust settled and nothing was said. A theme we highlighted earlier in this case was that Raynella was treated differently, potentially because she had been the wife of a former district attorney, and as you're about to find out, it wasn't about to change just because a couple of years had passed since Ed died. In December of 1994, Raynella's oldest child, Maggie, who was 15 at the time, was driving a pickup truck out on the farm with her 11-year-old brother, Eddie, in the passenger seat. Maggie only had a provisional license and was not permitted to drive on the roadway without someone else who had a full driver's license supervising her. She didn't know the rules of the road properly and failed to give way, crashing into another vehicle. What made the situation worse was that their younger brother wasn't wearing a seatbelt and was ejected out the passenger side window. First responders on site discovered that she wasn't being supervised and a neighbor drove to Raynella's home to get her. Upon arrival, Raynella lied to the police. She explained that she had been in the passenger seat the whole time. Local police simply wrote this in the report despite the first responders telling them that she was not there. The whole thing was completely swept under the carpet, but only temporarily, as you will soon find out. With seeming favoritism from the law like this, Raynella was living a charmed life. Other neighbors and locals who witnessed the incident at the time said they didn't contradict her. They were too frightened of her. But remember, there is no such thing as a victimless crime. The driver of the other vehicle was left with critical injuries, but did eventually make a recovery. But most tragically of all, little Eddie, who was just 11 years old, had been thrown from the vehicle and died from his injuries. Raynella and Dave, it was observed, were shattered by the death of little Eddie, but strangely, the person responsible, Maggie, showed little signs of remorse. Little Eddie was buried alongside his father, Ed, at the family farm. For two very different reasons, the family had now lost two of its number. Amazingly, this tragic event gets worse. The local district attorney's office recommended that the other driver have charges brought against them for the incident because they had been driving without a license also. But no charges were to be brought against Maggie Dossett, a sign of yet more potential favoritism being shown towards Raynella. She must have felt above the law at this point. However, this time, things caught up with her. Despite the recommendations from the district attorney, the Tennessee Highway Patrol wasn't happy and wouldn't go along with the DA's recommendation. They recommended charges be brought against Maggie. Subsequently, in February of 1995, Maggie was charged with failure to yield. But once again, Lady Luck smiled on the Dossets. At juvenile court, the case was dismissed. Many at the time accused law enforcement of once again showing favoritism to someone related to a former colleague of theirs. Up until this point, any suspicions around Raynella's intimidating or volatile behavior has been pretty open for debate, but that was all about to change. Her behavior was to become more erratic than ever. Remember Steve and Kay, the friends of the Dossets? Well, shortly after little Eddie died, Kay had gone to her husband and said that she was in love with someone else and wanted a divorce. 
Steve didn't fight it very much. The marriage was all but over anyway. But in the divorce courts, it came out that Kyle, their youngest son, was not Steve's at all, but Ed Dossett's son. Steve must have been a pretty good guy because he seemed to take it all in stride. He didn't treat Kyle any differently than his other son and willingly continued to pay child support. But where does Rainella come into all of this? One day, she called Steve and invited him around to the farm, where she confessed that she knew all along about the affair between Kay and Ed. The couple spent a few hours discussing their partner's affair, and then they went their separate ways. But the next day, Rainella called Steve again. She said she found papers, hidden by Ed, that showed that both of Steve's children were Ed's. Steve, of course, was keen to find out the truth. He wanted to see them. Rainella picked him up and brought him out to the farm. They drove to a barn on the property, which is where Rainella said the papers had been found. She pointed at a bucket in the far corner of the barn, telling Steve that that's where they were. Steve walked over and then bent over to look inside, but it was a bucket full of paint. He turned around to see Rainella with a hand towel wrapped around her hands, but sticking out of that towel was the barrel of a revolver. Without hesitation, she fired at Steve twice in quick succession, but luckily both shots missed. Steve made a run for it, as fast as he could, running through the field. He thought he had gotten away. But Rainella got back into her vehicle and started to give chase. Firing the gun several times more, but still missing Steve, she hunted him down. Steve lost his footing on the uneven ground and fell over. Rainella got out of her vehicle and stood over him. Before firing the weapon, she said, I can't miss you from here. I'll kill you and Kay, then raise Kyle myself. Without mercy, she stood over Steve with a revolver pointed at his head, and she squeezed the trigger. But instead of a loud bang, the revolver just went click. Fortunately for Steve, Rainella had used all of her bullets. Very strangely at this point, Steve said Rainella's demeanor changed completely. She almost came across as kind, like nothing had happened. She invited Steve up to her house where she would get him something for his sprained ankle. Thankfully, Steve wasn't stupid. He told her that if she left the gun, he would follow her. She put the gun on a fence post and walked off. Steve, wisely, grabbed the gun and ran away as fast as his swollen ankle would carry him in the opposite direction. He had a very narrow escape. He ran to a nearby property, but no one was home. He then hid in case she came looking for him, presumably with a different weapon, and he was right to do so. Hiding in the bushes at the side of the road, Rainella's vehicle went up and down the road looking for him. Steve eventually found a mobile home where an elderly couple let him use their phone to call police. Law enforcement immediately went to the property to investigate, but it wasn't going to be very straightforward. In a very sly move, Rainella preempted Steve and called the police herself, telling them that he had gone crazy and stolen her gun. She even went to lengths of calling Kay and telling her that Steve had gone mad. Kay believed Rainella and called the daycare center, asking them not to let him near their children. At the time, even local law enforcement, who, let's be honest, had let her get away with a lot, couldn't cover this up. Her story didn't make sense, and she wasn't believed. Rainella was charged with attempted murder and released on bail with a $10,000 bond on the same day. Understandably, Steve was terrified the whole time that she was out on bail, 
He said that he hardly slept and never went to bed. He stayed up in his chair the whole time holding on to a gun just in case she came back to finish the job. Raynella's attorney tried to have the case dismissed, making Steve out to be a liar, but it was a desperate ruse. In January of 1996, Raynella was indicted by a grand jury. Just two weeks before she went on trial, Raynella went in for a plea bargain. She agreed to plead guilty to assault as long as the attempted murder charge was dropped and, after her sentence was served, it would be wiped from her record. This was accepted, and she was given six years probation and 100 days of community service. She had gotten off quite lightly. Don't forget at this point, Dave and Raynella remained married through this entire episode. He was still madly in love with her. After the court proceedings had finished, they made several changes to the finances of their relationship. Their prenuptial agreement that they had signed was torn up, and Dave changed his will. And guess who became the sole beneficiary? Yep, Raynella. Dave even cut his daughter Cindy, who he adored, completely out of the will. He was also a grandfather by this point, but his grandson wouldn't get anything either. Most shocking of all, one would call it even stupidity on Dave's part, when his mother eventually died, Raynella would inherit her home as well. It's hard to imagine how she sold that one to Dave. She now stood to inherit everything Dave had, making his life almost worthless. He was, quite literally, worth more dead than alive, especially to Raynella. In early 2000, surprisingly, he had gone back to a relative normal life. That is, until Dave fell ill. He was suffering from hallucinations, high cholesterol, and had a minor stroke. Once again, we saw it when Ed was ill, Raynella took full charge, isolating family members, including Cindy, Dave's daughter. Cindy did go to the hospital to see her dad, but Raynella told her to go away, and she would be in contact if there was anything she needed to know. Not long after, while Dave was still in the hospital, Raynella visited a company which dealt with cremations. She actually paid up front for Dave and her cremation at the same time. Dave did, however, make a pretty good recovery, but he was forced to retire from his work as a barber. He had a severely enlarged prostate, making it difficult for him to leave home for long periods of time. For clarity, we should remember that up until recently, Dave's health had been fine. Suddenly, he started suffering with all kinds of ailments. As part of his prostate problems, he was required to use a catheter. Despite this, he was still the same man underneath. He wanted to look after his physical appearance and continued to go to the gym and used a sunbed. He was required to make regular visits to a neurologist. As well as all of his other ailments, Dave had now started to suffer with short-term memory loss. During one such visit to the neurologist, Dave said something we've heard before in this case. I think my wife is trying to kill me. She's tried to suffocate me. Astonishingly, the doctor simply brushes this off and assumed it was simply Dave's brain playing tricks on him. By September of 2002, Raynella had served her probation and had a clean record again, as if she had never tried to murder Steve at all. In October, Dave was at one of his regular checkups, and he seemed to be making good progress, even discussing activities he was planning for the future. Sadly, this didn't last long. By January 2003, he was back at the doctor's office, extremely emotional and even struggling to speak to the extent that he told his doctor he had almost given up speaking at all. 
Truth be told, the doctor had no idea what was wrong with Dave. The only preliminary diagnosis that he gave was that of early senile dementia. Bad health also hit Rainella soon after. She told Dave she had to go for a hysterectomy, but that he wasn't allowed to visit her. Dave reluctantly agreed, but one day he just couldn't help himself and went to visit. He learned that she had actually undergone a double mastectomy, a traumatic experience for any woman, of course, but this is a theme that we've seen through Rainella's life. She refuses to let anyone know about bad health, not just for herself, but also hiding her current husband's condition from his daughter and Ed's conditions from his family, friends, and colleagues as well. Was she afraid of discussing illnesses? Was she afraid of death itself? Or could it have been a fear of looking weak to the outside world? We see this theme again with Dave's mother, who later on suffered from ovarian cancer and had to go in for life-saving surgery. Rainella once again took charge and told the rest of Dave's family that she was going into the hospital for a minor routine operation. March 13, 2004, Dave had offered to help a friend with a few jobs. He seemed in relatively good health and good spirits. Rainella went to the hospital, taking a bunch of flowers for her mother-in-law, something she didn't normally do. Dave normally visited his mother alone. Rainella was seen on various CCTV images at the hospital. Cindy then received a call from Rainella asking if she had seen Dave. Now, let's not forget, Rainella had done her best to isolate Dave from his daughter because of his ill health. Why would she have seen him? Rainella explained that Dave may have gone without eating his breakfast and that he shouldn't be out on an empty stomach. Just after 11 in the morning, Rainella called 911. I know, it seems a little drastic for someone who's afraid their husband went without eating breakfast. Well, maybe Renella was secretly clairvoyant. When police got around to her home to try to find Dave, they did find him lying in his bed with a gunshot wound through his forehead. Now, Dave was very ill, as we have demonstrated, and he did have many health problems. But could he have been depressed enough to take his own life? Many people felt that was unlikely. Firstly, he had a daughter and a grandchild that he adored. But most intriguingly, three shots had been fired, two of which missed. The police didn't know what had happened, but they were pretty confident it wasn't a suicide. Dave's family also didn't believe it was a suicide. Dave was afraid of guns. As a youngster, his father took him out hunting, and he would refuse to kill any animals and never owned a weapon. He also was right-handed. Where the gun had been found was on his left, making it look as though he had used his left hand to shoot himself. Now, remember also what was wrong with Dave from that wood-chopping accident? That's right, he had zero vision in his left eye. The medical officer determined that Dave's death was not a suicide, but nobody was able to determine a clear cause of death. Rainella now angered another set of family members, she had Dave cremated without asking anyone else's opinion. Everyone knew this was something that Dave did not want. He was very religious and believed that those who were cremated could not go to heaven. Suspicions now grew from the family, friends, and finally law enforcement. Police did some digging and found out that Rainella had paid for the cremation of Dave long before his death. Their suspicions grew. They decided to go back and review the death of Ed Dossett. This time, they got a professional medical practitioner to review the death and autopsy findings. 
they concluded that Ed actually died from an overdose of morphine, not from being trampled by enraged cattle. Ed was, of course, genuinely very ill. He had terminal cancer and was prescribed morphine from the pain, but the toxicology report stated that the amount in his bloodstream was a lethal dose. Not only that, but they concluded that it would have been nearly impossible for anyone to function properly while under the influence of such a strong substance in such a large quantity. Police weren't taking any chances this time. After all, it isn't inconceivable that they themselves could face disciplinary action for going easy on this woman over the years. They got to work on getting charges set up for the murder of not just Ed, but also Dave. At this point, Rainella was still visiting Dave's sick mom in a nursing home. She still would not allow anyone apart from herself and medical staff to visit the woman. Just one day before Dave's mom was due to be moved to a new nursing home, she passed away. Although there is no proof, Dave's daughter Cindy has accused Rainella of murdering her grandmother. Now, we make no accusations, but we must remember that Rainella was also the sole beneficiary of this will as well, and it could be seen as motive by some. Cindy's suspicions weren't helped when she was invited to a reading of her father's will and found out that Dave had left everything to Rainella, completely excluding her and her children. By 2005, the case of Dave Leith hadn't progressed. Cindy accused authorities of allowing Rainella's previous standing in the community, plus her current wealth, to protect her. Cindy even spoke to Steve about the night Rainella tried to kill him, but he refused to speak about it to her, telling her to leave well enough alone or her life may also be in danger. Cindy wrote a letter to the DA's office. Weeks went by without any response, but Cindy was nothing if not persistent. She eventually got a meeting with the investigators and the DA, and she was simply told there hadn't been any developments. Fast forward to 2006. Cindy wasn't prepared to wait any longer. She filed a civil lawsuit against Rainella, accusing her of murdering her father, or alternatively hiring someone to murder him for her. Cindy didn't ask for money. But she did want Rainella to forfeit any inheritance if found guilty of the murder of her father. In November of 2006, an indictment was issued for Rainella, charging her with the premeditated murder of Dave Leith. Although charged, Rainella was again granted a very low bond of just $5,000. One has to ask the question how many people in the U.S. legal system accused of homicide would be allowed out on such a small cash assurance? At Beyond Evil, we have covered many cases, and this is one of the lowest bonds we have ever seen for such a serious crime. To make it worse, no court date was set either. Rainella had now inherited money from two dead husbands and one of her husband's mothers. She was very comfortably off. If she wanted to run away, what was losing $5,000 going to matter to her? Probably not much. In December 2006, something finally went against Rainella. A court ruled that Dave's new will was not valid, presumably because of the illness he was suffering at the time, which could have made him not of sound body and mind. Rainella was forced to hand over half of the assets that she had gained from Dave's will. In September of 2007, Rainella attended a plea hearing where she pled not guilty to Dave's murder. She went on trial in March of 2009. This resulted in a mistrial because the jury couldn't reach a unanimous verdict. 
although the count amongst the jurors was 11 guilty and 1 not guilty. Rainella certainly does seem to have the luck of the devil at this point. In 2010, she went on trial for a second time. Ballistic experts testified that Dave was shot once through the head, and the shot had been fired from a distance of 12 to 14 inches away. Medical practitioners also testified, saying that four different kinds of medications were found in Dave's body. The doses of the medicines, in their opinion, would have rendered Dave unable to get out of bed, let alone to get a gun and shoot himself. It was their opinion that he simply wasn't physically capable. The prosecution argued that because no fingerprints had been found on the gun, it was highly unlikely to be a suicide. After all, if you're going to kill yourself, the last thing you would worry about is having your fingerprints on the weapon. Remember, there were three gunshots found at the scene, two that had missed. It was almost impossible that not a single print would be found on the weapon. Nothing Raynella did that morning really made sense. She called Cindy at her work to ask about Dave. She had never called Cindy before at work. She also told 911 at the time that she had left Dave at home with his breakfast on the bedside table. So why did she call Cindy, assuming that Dave hadn't eaten his breakfast? She wasn't there, supposedly. Apparently, she hadn't been home for quite a while. She was, of course, seen on CCTV footage at the hospital, but when police arrived, the clothes dryer was still running, something authorities found strange. The prosecution accused her of murdering Dave the night before, then taking her daughter to high school before using the remaining time to call 911 to make sure she had an alibi. On January 25, 2010, it was Judgment Day. A jury came back into the courtroom to deliver their verdict after two days of deliberation. The verdict? Guilty. This jury was not swayed by any of the defense counsel's arguments. In the eyes of the law, Dave Leith had been murdered, and he had been murdered by Rainella. At this point, the prosecution dropped the charges of first-degree murder for Ed Dossett. Rainella was given a life sentence, so they presumed they didn't need those charges any longer. The defense tried to appeal the judgment, but it was denied. They tried again in 2013, and again, it was denied. In 2015, Rainella hired a new defense team. They took a different line. They said that according to Dave's doctor, his dementia was deteriorating fast and that he was experiencing increased and more severe mood swings. On top of that, they alleged that the police had moved the gun used to kill Dave before crime scene investigators had inspected the murder scene. This, in their eyes, they made the scene of death evidence inadmissible. The deputy who gave the statement about the gun being moved later retracted it and changed his versions of events, but it was still on the court records. A pathologist also testified for the defense, stating that although Dave had different kinds of medications in his body, they were within the expected range that you would be expected to find, meaning that Dave might not have been incapacitated. But most damning of all, the defense took a huge risk by accusing the judge of a previous trial of being under the influence of drugs. It was true. The previous judge did suffer with an addiction to narcotics. He was removed from his position immediately. The whole case was falling down around the prosecution. In May of 2016, Raynella was granted a new trial because of the intoxicated state of the judge. She was, again, released on bail while awaiting trial. 
In 2017, Rainella went on trial for the third time. This time, the prosecution argued, using expert testimony, that Dave had been sitting upright when he was shot, not lying in bed, while the defense argued that all the evidence pointed toward suicide. They even brought in the exact bed with the blood-stained mattress, reenacting how it could have been suicide. They said that Dave could have missed with the first shot, killed himself with the second, and the third was an involuntary muscular reaction to his death. Both the prosecution and the defense came up with compelling arguments, but the defense seemed to have the upper hand. The main argument was that no one could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this was not suicide. Plus, this time, the prosecution was arguing that Dave was sat upright when he was shot and that Rainella had staged the crime scene. This would prove to be a mistake. This now meant that their medical examiner was no longer able to argue that the medication in Dave's system was incapacitating. As the trial drew to a close, the jury was given its instructions, but before they could go and deliberate, the defense moved for the charge to be dropped due to a lack of evidence, a common occurrence in many American courtrooms which is more often than not dismissed, but not in this case. The judge agreed that too many of the prosecution's arguments had fallen apart under the scrutiny of the defense team, and Raynella was acquitted. Judge Paul Summers ruled that even if Dave Leith had not committed suicide, there was no compelling evidence to suggest that Raynella was on the property when the shots had been fired. She was a free woman again. Naturally, the friends and family of Dave Leith were left unhappy with the verdict. Raynella had escaped conviction in the first trial by the skin of her teeth. She was convicted in the second trial, but in the third, they believed justice was not delivered because of a technicality. In other words, the motion by the defense. Several of the jurors were interviewed after the trial. They had all been left very annoyed that they didn't give a chance to give their verdict because they all believed that Rainella was guilty. The jurors' reactions could also lead people to think that emotions had been running high in the courtroom and that the judge had done his job by dismissing the charges. After all, the evidence presented by the prosecution was argued against very strongly by the defense. One aspect that is surely undeniable, though, is that Rainella was treated very leniently by law enforcement. Her first husband, Ed, died in dubious circumstances, but no proper investigation was launched into the cause of death. They simply took her explanation at face value. The postmortem on Ed was frankly a joke, conducted by someone who wasn't just addicted to drugs, but, to be blunt, was a pedophile. She was allowed to lie about her daughter's car crash, which led to her son's death. She tried to kill Steve Walker, who was left fearing for his life. But when he needed protection from her the most, she was released on a pitiful bond and then given a very favorable plea bargain. When her second husband died, again, the circumstances were far from clear. Despite one jury being almost unanimous and another convicting her, she still managed to evade punishment. The American judicial system is notoriously strict and hands out very long sentences, especially in the southern states where Rainella lives. So why was she entitled to such alleged preferential treatment? Was it the fact that she had been married to a former district attorney, leaving her well-connected? Was it the fact that she was wealthy due to all of the inheritance she had received? The truth is, 
we may never know. The only hope for the relatives of Dave Leith is that the authorities pursue the death of Ed Dossett more closely. Surely law enforcement would like to know if one of their own, a former colleague, was murdered or not. In hindsight, it was a mistake for the prosecution to drop those charges, believing they had a slam dunk with Dave's death. So far, the family of Ed have expressed no wishes to pursue the case. Despite all of these unanswered questions, we at Beyond Evil always remember the victims of these crimes, and they were important ones. Two men, not very old, whose lives came to a premature end, both in very different scenarios. We may never know how either of them truly died. Neither of them may have been saints, but they didn't deserve the early death that came their way. And we must not forget little Eddie either killed because his sister shouldn't have been driving on her own. He was just 11 years old. He hardly got to experience any of the joys of life. Rest in peace, Ed Dossett, Little Eddie Dossett, and Dave Leith. Whatever your thoughts on this case, whether you believe Rainella was unfortunate and victimized by her husband's family, or whether or not you believe she is guilty, no one can deny with these three deaths and one attempted murder of Steve Walker, there is only one common denominator, and that is Rainella. She still lives in the same area that she always has, a free woman with zero criminal convictions on her name. The question still remains open, though. Was she guilty or not? If you found this story compelling, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen, and please leave a five-star review if you would like to show your support. Don't forget to hit the notification bell to stay up to date each time we reveal a new shocking case. Until next time, stay safe and keep your eyes peeled. You never know what's lurking in the shadows.